Welcome to Conservation Federation, the official podcast of the Conservation Federation of Missouri. I'm your host, Brandon Butler, the Executive Director of the Conservation Federation, and you are listening to Episode 1, which was recorded on November 8th, Election Day 2016, in the Governor's Office at the State Capitol. On this historic day, it is my honor to sit down with Governor Jay Nixon to discuss conservation and the many natural resources accomplishments of his administration. Governor, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's truly an honor. It's always great to be with you. Not, not as great to be with you inside, but we'll, we'll tolerate being in an office. I usually get to see in a lot prettier places than this. Well, I'll, I'll be outside around a campfire on my uh, new property down by Echo Bluff later tonight. Great. I just got to begin by you know thanking you for your long-term service to the state of Missouri and all the people of this state, um, especially for your steadfast support of conservation and natural resources throughout your tenure of public service. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's something that my family's been involved with for a number of years. I had the great benefit of having my dad and uncles and aunts and other folks that just like to get outside, whether it was canoeing, which we did a lot, or hunting or fishing. That's just what we did. And the chance to lay out those Missouri values and then make progress in those areas as governor has been one of the highlights of my public service. Well, you've held elected office since 1986 when you first became a state senator. You were elected to attorney general in 1992, serving in that role until elected governor in 2008. Today, Missourians are deciding who will be the 56th governor of our great state. So after 30 years in elected office, serving the last eight years of those as governor, how does it feel as this journey's coming to an end? Well, it actually feels pretty good. In August, when uh, George and I voted, we, we came back and saw each other that night. Neither one of us felt bad. I mean, I, I hope, uh, what do they say, every sport has a season. Every time in your life you have a level of service you do. And, and quite frankly, after being governor for eight years, it's such a, such a high point. And we've worked so hard, and we're going to work really hard in the next 61 days to finish this thing out, that I won't look back on it with regrets. And it's been a great opportunity. People have given us a tremendous honor to serve. There's always more that you wanted to do, but I feel it in, in the chances I've had to provide stewardship and leadership to the state that I've, uh, I've had an opportunity for 30 years to be a player in that. And it's time to move on to other things in my life. I watched an interview. Bill Maher interviewed President Obama last week, and he said something similar. He said, after eight years, it's time. But he also said, I feel like I'm as good of a president today as I've been. Take some time to learn the office. Do you concur with that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's complicated when you have all of the things you're doing and you kind of learn when to inject yourself and when not to, the timing of it. You learn every day. You're curious. I mean, today I was in Adrian, Missouri, a small town that won a national Blue Ribbon School. And I hadn't been there as governor before. I was at uh, Washington, Missouri, at St. Francis Borgia High School. They're the first time a governor's ever been there. It's a hundred, over a hundred-year-old school. So you learn more each and every day. So in that sense, all you do really as governor is try to make decisions and reflect in the most positive way the people of your state to move them forward. And the more you know about them, and the more you deeply understand your state or your country, the better are you able to serve. And people just have no idea the the diversity of events you have to attend and the topics you have to understand and the things you have to tackle. When you talk about, we'll, we'll leave in to go next week, for example, I've got a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the CEO of Bayer. You know, they're, they're attempting to buy Monsanto. We're working to get prepared for that meeting. It's a $66 billion transaction, thousands of jobs. We'll be in Israel after that, where we're going to do an agreement with the chief scientists of Israel for startup companies for co-investments. And then the next day, there might be a flood or a tornado or something we got to do back here at home and continuing to work on a number of things. So it's a widely diverse field you're working in, but I'd like to believe that people understand that I've, I've been serious about the work. I've tried to take the high road, a little less traffic up there during this process, and I think people respect that. And the, the stress level has to be almost unbearable at times, but it also, the position 
lends itself to some some amazing opportunities that average average citizens will never be able to understand. Well, especially after being an attorney, attorney general is a position of contention. You're suing people, you're putting them in jail and whatever. Uh, and so there are people that are on your side, but there's people against you. When you're governor, if you actually do the job well, and I'm not saying there's not points of contention, but what you're trying to do is channel what you think the people of your state feel and then make decisions based on that. So yeah, there's a lot of, of points of frustration. I think especially around the political system right now, people get really hot, get, get uh, pretty pretty hyped up, and that part of it makes it hard. When people are, are really loud or really upset, it, it's kind of hard for them to lay out what they want to do. So there are times of great frustration, but they're clearly, the upside is, is pretty amazing. So whether it's getting to throw out the first pitch at a Cardinal game or being in a pits with Carl Edwards or, or, you know, going hiking at Echo Bluff, a state park that's come in, into play since I've been governor. All of that sort of stuff gives you a, a real good feeling that makes up for some of the some of the annoyances. And when the times get tough, yourself, myself, and millions more Missourians, we, we find our solace in the outdoors. Absolutely. I think outdoors, we, the first lady and I try to hike every day if we can. It's the time we spend together, usually with Huck, our dog. And I've been to get up as governor, getting up earlier and earlier. It's something like there's a great solace to see dawn. And if you can see dawn in a quiet way out somewhere where the only thing you're listening to is what the good Lord's providing, it does give you perspective to make the decisions that you need to make. Well, your your efforts in the conservation and natural resources realm have not gone unnoticed. People are already starting to refer to you as the conservation governor. And over time, I expect regard for your conservation efforts will continue to grow. Why were you so committed as governor to conservation? You know, I was born and raised in a family that that did a lot of things outside. And when you get in a position like this, you want to make improvements. That's why reintroducing native elk is important. Fighting and winning battles so that folks didn't try to turn deer into livestock, important. Expanding the park system, very important. Making sure that we've got long-term plans for clean air, clean water, and habitat restoration, very important. The thing that's on the ballot today, it'll be over by the time people are listening to this, the re-upping of the soil and water and park sales tax, extremely important. Things that are that Missourians have made, made priorities for them, I wanted to not just keep the same, but to make better. And so areas like these that are both fun, important, and interesting to me are areas in which I have spent some significant time and hopefully made progress in ways that will be difficult for anybody to, to, to back it up. My first experience working with you was during the big 2014 captive deer debacle. And for those of you listening who don't know what I'm talking about, a couple of years ago we had an issue arise where captive deer, the industry was trying to get control transferred from the Department of Conservation to the Department of Agriculture, basically turning a wildlife species into livestock. There was a lot of support for this on the Republican side of the legislature. They actually passed it in the general session, and it was vetoed by you. Thank you very much for that. And it went to veto session. But it wasn't just the captive deer bill. They they packaged this into an omnibus bill. And I don't think a lot of citizens realize that It's not like a vote takes place on every single issue by itself. There's packages of bills, and they took this and packaged it with a number of agriculture bills that you and I and so many other people thought were good bills. In fact, you signed much of that legislation in the following session. But, you know, you had enormous pressure on you to sign that legislation. Why didn't you? It's a principle for me that the people of the state of Missouri, now over 75 years ago, recognized that we needed to be different about conservation. And they stepped forward. And in the very room that I vetoed that bill, 
was where one of the original meetings to form the Conservation Constitutional Amendment and the Conservation Federation, those meetings were had in that very room. And to me, it's a principle. And when the people of this state voted and then have consistently supported an independent agency being the regulator and the supporter of wildlife, and we see what that has done in 75 years, going from just a few thousand turkeys to hundreds of thousands, going from a few thousand deer to a situation in which we'll have almost 450,000 people opening day of gun season this Saturday morning out there at the same time, and they'll harvest well over 240,000 deer this year. That's the kind of long-term record that's important. And changing that way that we have built up those resources by saying that, no, those, those, those animals are not wild animals, they're livestock, that's not a positive step forward. To say that, that all deer would then be susceptible to the Department of Agriculture, when the Department of Agriculture testified against the bill. So the reason that I was so strong in this is this is just one of those bedrock principles that is supported, in my view, by not just you and I and not just the people that are here now, but by our fathers and grandfathers, our mothers and grandmothers for the last 80 years. And when people try to upset the apple cart of conservation that has been in place and succeeded so well and has such great opportunities, the reintroduction of the native elk, the expansion of trout fishing areas, the trophy trout areas of our state, what's next? I mean, so the bottom line is that I felt that it was a principle. And in that situation, I needed to be clear. And yes, there were some other measures in that bill that ultimately became law the next year. But I didn't want them to put a few pieces of candy in what was an unacceptable sour taste. Uh, so for for me, that was while there was a lot of action around it, once they added that amendment to the bill, I knew I wouldn't sign it. Well, there's many of us that are extremely grateful for that. But I don't think you have any idea how, how nervous I was as a, a new director of CFM to have the governor's office calling me almost hourly towards the end. And I, I think I had about 24 hours notice. And my instructions were to get people there. And there was no time for RSVPs. So I'm calling as many people as I can, emailing as many people as I can, begging people to come to this press conference, which was at the Tiger Hotel in Columbia in the same room where CFM was founded in September of 1935. And, you know, people aren't telling me that they're coming and people aren't responding, but I told them all to be there an hour early, just so if it was bad, I could get back on the, the horn. At least a half an hour before you got there, we ran out of chairs. And then we ran out of standing room only. And then the media absolutely covered the far wall. What did it mean at that moment when you realized you had this outpouring of support for your decision? Well, it it meant a tremendous amount. I think two things from that day really stand out to me. First of all, the four commissioners of the Conservation Commission that were there with us, I really think they're outstanding Missourians, and they reflect that independence that's necessary of a Conservation Commission so that they can make long-term decisions. So I'm very proud of those four members of the Conservation Commission that also stood up because they've been shielded by the way the system is set up from the day-to-day politics. Appointed, once they're confirmed, they got six years, and, and there's only four of them, so it takes three to get a vote to do something. So that was important. Also, the breadth of the support. Folks that had never shot a gun were there. Folks that had never been involved in in turkeys or deer were there because groups like the Conservation Federation said it's important that we stand together here. Whether it's the Audubon Society wanting to make sure that there are places that we can look at birds or the whitetail deer folks that want to make sure we've got a good herd to hunt. The bottom line is when it comes to these deep values, one of the things I was impressed and would not have happened but for your and the Federation's leadership was the breadth of support, not just the depth of the narrowness supporter of people that like to 
like to hunt deer, and there were plenty of those. But the breadth of the support of all of the other affiliated groups that are around the Conservation Federation, which is a very unique organization in itself. But when you look out and then you see the Parks Association there, when you see Audubon Society there, when you see the Nature Conservancy there, these are not folks you're going to have to push out of the way to get onto your deer stand Saturday morning. But they knew this stood for a principle that they were part of a team, and the breadth of that support was impressive, and I think one of the reasons why we ultimately prevailed. I'll always look back on that moment as kind of a defining time in my early tenure. This That's really when I realized the strength of this federation, and really because of the diversity, like you said, when you looked across the room and you, and you saw people that'll never hunt, but understood the importance of wildlife and protecting wildlife, and the coming together of all these organizations to support a common cause, seeing the power of the citizens supporting the decision, it it really filled me with a sense of pride, and, and at that moment I knew that we really have a, a formidable force in the Federation to, to help enact decisions in the future that will protect wildlife and wildlife habitat for hopefully decades, if not centuries, to come. Well, I do think that last piece you just said, the habitat, is also important. I think that's one of the things the Federation brings to this. Conservation worries about that sort of stuff, but your organization is uniquely positioned with the breadth of your, you know, the Prairie Foundation, all the other folks that that talk about the forestry groups, the broader, not just the flora, but the flora and the fauna that are involved in the Federation, because you can't have a population, a wildlife population, unless they have territory and things to eat and ways to live. And, and that's something that uniquely the Federation brings to the table. And I thought that that fight that we won, very close, but we won, provided everybody an, an opportunity to understand how, as you said, how broad the coalition is and could be. The other thing that was good about that room, you looked out and you expected to see all the old guys, all the usual faces. There were a lot of young folks there. I don't, I don't know who did what, but you had a lot of young folks there who are getting more and more active. I think there's, there's folks out there that believe that the young folks don't get active in these sort of things. And I've, I think the exact opposite is possible. We're a state in which young people are getting out and hunting. They're getting out and fishing. The Federation has been incredibly helpful to us in making sure we get that governor's turkey hunt each year and, and that sort of thing. And getting those young folks out. And I know you personally have, have, have taken to that in a big way. I, I see you with your hunting buddy all the time talking about first time he's done this or that. That sort of stuff is really important. And making sure that a group like that, that day and today, includes young people is really important. Yeah, I've had a great time with that young man. You know, he's a perfect, perfect candidate. And I was very pleased that he was accepted to be on the governor's youth turkey hunt. Comes from a, a very hard home life. His mother's trying to hold down multiple jobs. And he just defines what it means to be a great kid. You know, he's trying so hard. And, and to have him have the opportunity to meet yourself and then uh, Rudy Raceline, who was our host at his personal property. It, it was just an amazing experience. But you touched on we won, but we, we barely won. So I, I need to kind of wrap this up and say that when this vote went to the veto session, there was a number of people there, and we lost in the Senate in the veto session by two. And all of those people left. They, le- they weren't going gonna to stay and watch this happen. I figured somebody had to go down with the ship. So I went in and sat by myself at the very end of the gallery. And in the middle, you had about 50 of the deer breeders. And they're there to celebrate what's about to happen. And for anybody that's never been in the chamber, there's a board that shows how people are voting, red or or green. And when it got to 109 votes, which is what they needed to, to overturn your veto, somebody from the floor screamed, close the vote, close the vote. And, um, you know, Speaker of the House at the time, Jones, starts running for the dais, and he's going to close the vote. And uh, Representative Rorda 
switched his vote. And I think the plan was to switch it before they had time to recognize it, and then they would close it and they'd lose by one. And it was kind of tricky, but they caught him. And what was amazing to me was the aggressiveness at which some of the representatives went after members of their own party that weren't voting with them. I mean, they packed up like wolves and went from seat to seat berating their own party, trying to get them to switch votes. And I had to sit there for about 25 minutes just in a daze, like, what is going on? What is happening? I'm new to all this at the time. And nobody would switch their vote. People got up and walked out, and time ran out, and it came down to a single vote. They needed 109 to overturn the veto, and they had 108, and we won by one. That's how close it was. Yeah, people held their votes. Like you say, whenever you have a democracy and folks are yelling for partisan reasons at each other, then you know you're right. In this job, when people are, when they sit across the table from and say, I'm a Democrat in this or I'm a Republican in that, you get, you know you're getting ready to get, it, it just makes it more difficult. But the bottom line is that people stuck that night. I, it is the exact number, but it didn't come back this year. You know, that was two years ago. So I, I understand there's a constant push on this sort of thing. But I do think that, as you say, things happen and they hap- it happened very dramatically. And it happened that we won and we were able to get the agriculture stuff done the next year that was in that bill and didn't get the, the captive deer bill to, to my desk again. So the bottom line is that sometimes these moments in history happen where you have to peak your power, peak the public's power. I think everybody did that. I'm not saying there aren't other challenges that we're going to face or that this couldn't come up again. But it's interesting to note that after that razor thin victory, that bill did not come up again. And that's great. But unfortunately, the fight's not over as now it's in the courts. And many people may know and some may not, that the regulations that were put in place by MDC would have banned the importation of captive deer in an effort to stop chronic wasting disease from from further being spread in our, our wild population here in the state. The captive deer breeder industry filed a lawsuit in a, in a county where we expect they had a friendly judge, which is why they would have picked that county. That judge did file a preliminary injunction to block those regulations, and then in court actually sided with the industry. So we do have an injunction on those regulations, but we are, are expecting an appeal and probably going to see this go all the way to the Supreme Court. I would expect it will. I mean, and I would expect, once again, I was attorney general for 16 years. Without commenting specifically on any of the judges or anything like that, I believe that clearly MDC has these, this authority. They've acted uh, responsibly. The other thing that, is, is that has, I think, will become even more apparent this weekend when checking stations are opened up in 33 counties that folks are going to check their deer. First of all, it's going to be like cool again you know, when you used to check your deer rather than just call it telecheck. And I think there's going to be lots of bragging at those stations where people are, people are comparing their deer and talking to their, their kids and their fellow neighbors about, about what, whether hunt's been successful or not. But it's also going to point out how serious CWD is. I think because of the aggressive action by MDC, we're not in a situation like Wisconsin was. We're not in a situation yet where even Arkansas is. And we need to support because if if CWD gets up and rampant in Missouri, you had years in Wisconsin where it basically ended deer as a sport. And so I think that this year when 33 counties, people go through that exercise, they'll begin to understand again how responsible NBC is and how important it is that we do everything within our power to keep chronic wasting disease out of the show me state. Couldn't agree with you more. Let's talk about check stations. When I was a kid, that's what we did. You know, mom and dad would drop us off at the check stations. Now I support telecheck and understand the convenience of it for those that aren't interested in going. But I'll tell you what, if I was a small business owner, I would have some kind of a deer check. I mean, cook chili, have a big buck contest. That was just some of the funnest things we did watching people come in with their deer when I was little. It's very, very much fun and you go even if you weren't successful the other thing the only thing that concerns me about the check stations this year 
is that that telecheck has been such an effective system to prompt people to share deal with share the harvest. And I, I just ask every hunter out there to remember we have an obligation not only to ourselves and our own family. If, if you take more meat than you're going to use or you can share that meat, the Conservation Federation and Department of Conservation have an outstanding program that helps folks that need that protein. You know, when, you, when you're on the phone and you're checking your deer and they say, do you want to, you hear it as a prompt, it, it's, it's in your head. But if you're checking that deer, you might not remember it as well. We need to keep up that strong effort to make sure that hunters are sharing uh, their bounty with others as part of the ongoing tradition in our state. Missouri has some of the finest state parks in America. That's unquestionable. Today, Missourians are voting on Amendment 1 to continue paying a one-tenth of a cent sales tax that funds our state parks as well as soil and water conservation efforts. You've been a champion for our state park system. You've improved existing parks, added new properties. What do our state parks mean to Missouri? Well, first of all, they're a great economic generator for our state. We set a record last year, 19.2 million visitors. We also set a record last year of, of visitors to the state of Missouri for, for our tourism industry. It means about almost 300,000 jobs if you count tourism and parks. So it's a big economic generator, regardless of whether you use them or not. Number two is that because of the sales tax and the support uh, of a lot of folks out there, we've been able to keep our parks free and improve the footprint. We've done a lot of things like State Park Youth Corps, where we've used um, economic development dollars to make sure we've had over almost 400,000 hours worked by kids out in our parks to keep them pristine. The bottom line is the parks are a tremendous asset in our state. We've been a finalist for Park System of the Year three times in the last six years. We're the best camping state. We won best trail state. They're a huge asset to our state and one that we think have a great economic as well as a cultural benefit. And state parks are such a gateway to a a love of the outdoors. I grew up in state parks in Indiana. My first state park I remember spending time at was Potato Creek near South Bend. We would always go up and see Notre Dame and and tour around the area. My dad wasn't a big outdoorsman. Mom and dad wanted to have a camper and a screened-in tent and watch golf. And my brother and I would just take off out into the wilds of Potato Creek State Park. But I'd read about the trout parks in Missouri, the state parks that have the trout fishing. And I couldn't wait to experience one of those parks when I moved here. So I I loaded up and went down to Bennett Spring and Anybody that's been to Bennett Spring, you know, and you're you're kind of rolling down that that hill into that beautiful lush valley, and you, you see the Spring Creek coming through, and I, I just can't wait to start fishing, but I can't figure out where to pay. So I'm driving around trying to find the gate, and I just I just want to go fishing. Finally, I walked into the concession, and it was like out of an old time movie. I found this little gray haired old lady, and I said, "Ma'am, where do I pay to enter this park?" And she said, "Oh, honey, you don't have to pay to go to state parks in Missouri." And I said, you have to be kidding me. Like, the concept was just completely foreign. I've never been where you don't have to pay to go into state parks. I I was just in Colorado this summer fishing. I was there during runoff, and I fished a steamboat tailwater three days in a row, $7 every day. And to be able to go into state parks in Missouri, to be a non-resident, to come to our state and spend time in our state parks and not have to pay— I mean, this tax that supports uh, our, our, our state parks and soil and water conservation costs the average Missourian $6 a year. So for $6, you get to go to these parks. And like you said, it, it drives so much economy. It's just an amazing, another amazing reason to be in Missouri. Well, we saw in, in the recession in 2009, 2010, other states were closing parks and charging admissions. We came up with what we call our 2020 plan. At that time, Director Brian and I and a number of folks, what our goal was was 20 million visitors, and I'm here to predict we're going to make it this year. Um, I count things. You know me. I I like to count. I'm hopeful if we can get a good warm weekend this weekend, we might just get it real soon here. That 20 million is a big number, but we also wanted to get $20 million. 
uh, and the way we were doing that is just trying to be a little more entrepreneurial. I'd say to folks, not charge them to get in, but if you get a black and white map for the trails for free, the parks give you a color one. Let's say it costs you two bucks. Maybe you can make a little off that. So what we're trying to do is provide people an opportunity to spend a little money while at their parks if they want to, to help us make sure that we keep this keep them up up kept well and because of that brandon we've been able to invest 69 million dollars since i've been governor in upkeeps in our parks that's taken what we've got and take care of it whether it's to bear proof the the garbage location down at roaring river or to fix up lodges or to fix bridges the people of our state have not only gotten in for free they've assisted us in ways both financial and otherwise to, to make sure our parks stay in good condition and, and they are in great condition. For those of you that don't get out and visit our state parks, take a trip. I mean, they are just pristine. And and speaking of pristine parks, Echo Bluff State Park, you know, that's now cemented as part of your legacy. The park's amazing. It just opened this summer. I've already stayed one night in the lodge, spent three different weekends in the campground. Every time I visited, the park is full. You can't get a campsite on the weekends. And they're booked full into the beginning of November. It's bringing tourism dollars to an economically depressed part of the state, protecting an amazing natural area. You know, kind of in the in the overview from start to finish, how did how did Echo Bluff State Park come to be? Well, we always knew that in the southeast section of our state, with the National Scenic Riverways, with the Six Springs, with the Trout Parks, with the Roger Pryor Backcountry, that we needed a jumping off place, a place in the center of that where folks from around the state and around the country could go for really nice accommodations, but that would allow them to have a 365-day-a-year experience. So we weren't looking to build something just for the summer or just for deer season or turkey season. What we were trying to do is make a very significant investment in a beautiful part of the state. So long story being short, my mom was a counselor at Old Camp Zoo, which I didn't know until just a few years ago. We'd already bought the property before I knew. The pictures of that were were lost when my sister's house burned down. But I did know about the property. And it came up for sale. Person that owned it got into trouble, and it was sold to courthouse steps. Once we bought it, then then we saw the you know we knew the possibility of it. We bought a couple other small tracks there, very reasonably to the taxpayers, I should note, the, down there. And that began the process of of seeing what we could do to lean in to make that jumping off place for the southeast Missouri for the Ozarks. And a lot of people were helpful in the planning of it. I think it's beautiful. And I should note to all the folks down there economically, we're not trying to be the market. We're trying to prime the market. I think there's many more opportunities for tourism and outdoor economy down there. And quite frankly, I was taken aback by something that was said by one of the local officials and that was printed in the Post-Dispatch. They said, what do you think about this? And the, the fellow said, the only thing we export down here in this county is logs and high school seniors. Uh-huh. The bottom line is that's an area of our state that the outdoor economy, uh, I mean, Tom Ullenbrock wrote a piece about six springs within 30 minutes of Echo Bluff that are incredible. Greer, Big Spring, Alley Spring, all of those. I think we're going to be able to get all kinds of outdoor experiences because we've got this centerpiece in that area. So that was the concept. It's been it's been carried out uh, so far so good, but it's, it makes me feel really good that a concept we had with a lot of a lot of buy-in from folks is working well. And it's, it's just such an amazing area. You know, I've, I've spent time in all corners of the state now, and everywhere I go, I, I'm like, I want to have a place here. But I finally... I finally buckled down and, and bought a place. I'm within a mile of Echo Bluff. I'm on Sinking Creek uh, in Happy Hollow. So I'm spending a lot of time down there. Actually, I shot my first buck off my land on, on Sunday with a, with a bow. But I'm getting to know some locals, too, folks like Max Gorman, who used to work for the Department of Conservation, was kind of Jerry Presley's right-hand man down there when he was director of MDC, and, and really just trying to ingrain myself in, in the local fabric of the, 
the area. And really, at this point, it's just great sentiment for the park. You see local canoe liveries bringing people in and out on buses. So you know that they're getting business out of the out of the campers in the park and the people in the lodge. So I think it, it's truly going to be looked at across the board as a positive move. I was walking across Wheeler Bridge down there, which is named for the first commissioner of education in the state of Missouri, my wife's father. And who should I see coming at me? A guy that's Jay. And I said, looked up, and it was John Hoskins, the former director of conservation. He just said, come over and brought his camper to spend a day because he'd heard so much about it. It was the middle of the week. I was down there for a meeting on something, and we talked for 15 or 20 minutes. And I, I do think as the park matures, as people move to get into Sinking Creek up and downstream from where the lodge is, as, as the trails become even more mature, it's going to be even better. The other thing that I liked about that, and this will sound weird, Brandon, I mean, Sinking Creek, and you've got land on it, is a beautiful stream, clear as can be, got fish in it. But it's not as cold as some of the other Ozark Springs. So if folks are taking their kids and they're there for the first time, they can very comfortably float or swim in it. It's just, it's just about the right size. It's not so big that they're going to drown or anything like that, but they can float up and down it, and it's, it's a stream that kids can get in, in in warm weather without turning blue. And so in that sense, it's a runoff. It's not a spring at that location. So it's really an excellent place for maybe some folks from the city that have been scared to get into water. Maybe they're afraid of, of white water or, or springs or the danger. I've seen families, when we've been down there, that kids for the first time kind of walk out there and realize you can almost see their eyes light up. It's the first time they've actually walked in a river. And then if you just go on downstream to where it meets the current, one of the most beautiful places in the state of Missouri is that confluence. And so, as you said, it's a jumping off place, but Sinking Creek's a special place. I think I've bought six pairs of river shoes for little girls now as my daughters bring friends down. And same thing. Yeah, first time they've ever been to a crystal clear stream down in the Ozarks. And, you know, the confluence with the current river is just downstream a little bit, so you have the best of both. You have the, the smaller Sinking Creek to kind of just sit around in, wait a little bit, and, and relax, as you said. And then if you want to get on a canoe trip, you go down the current river, which, you know... I, as a guy who spent some time living in Montana and Colorado, I'll put the current river in the Jack's Fork up against any rivers in America when it comes to scenery. They are just phenomenal. I will tell you, down in that region, too, we've, we've, uh, we've got a piece of property that we bought over 5,000 acres for parks down on the 11 point that we won't be able to get developed while I'm, uh, while I'm governor. But for future generations, it's going to provide that last of those three major rivers down there. The 11 point's a stunning river. You can fish smallmouth and trout in sections of it below Greer Spring. I think future generations are going to have the opportunity to be in that river where we haven't had a park around it to get access in and out of it. So I think this area is going to continue to grow in the outdoor economies years to come. I think Echo Bluff is a centerpiece for that because it's a kind of place that and not only can you come if, on a vacation, but businesses can have their retreats there. It's, a, it's an A1 facility. We've already gotten a lot of business for banks and law firms and organizations having their annual meetings there, things of that nature. So we're trying to make sure that people know it's going to be open and operating all year round. It is an amazing addition to an already incredible state park system. And a pinnacle of that state park system is the Katy Trail, the longest rails-to-trails trail in America. And you just announced something really special. We're really excited. We're going to be able to get that Katy Trail completed all the way to Pleasant Hill, which means from Windsor to Pleasant Hill. In other words, that trail is going to go from Kansas City to St. Louis. So they're already the longest rails-to-trail. We're going to add 47 miles to it. If the weather can stay straight here, we should have that done by the first week of December. I hope to be the first person to officially ride that, although we got some folks roguely riding it right now. I, I, Senator Pierce is out there about every weekend. He and, and Chuck Ambrose, the president of UCM, those guys have ridden every inch of it, but I'll, I'll, I'll act like I was the first guy to get it done. But we hope to get that done. And then the city of Kansas City and Jackson County has access to property all the way down to the Kansas border. So we're, we get that section done for the state, same as it goes to St. Louis over to Mockins and the St. Charles 
side with Great Rivers Greenway, you can go to the arch. On this Kansas City side, pretty clearly you're going to be in a situation where you can ride or walk all the way from the Kansas border to the St. Louis, Illinois border without without stopping for traffic or having any cars or, or anything like that. It's going to be an amazing asset. And, and talk about an economic driver in the center part of the state. I live close to Rocheport and, and see the sheer number of people that come through on bikes every year. And a good friend of mine owns a bed and breakfast there and supports his livelihood. One thing that many people don't know about the Federation is our foundation has a shelter in Tebbets, really just a hostel. And we're getting ready to kick off a fundraiser, a poster campaign to raise money to expand our system. Someday we have a vision to complete a chain of hostels across. So you could you could ride from one side of the state to the other and have an affordable place to sleep. It should be a really cool system when we're done. Wow, that's 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 really something and very, very special. I do think that we're going to continue to see a lot more international tourists come in there. That area by Rochport gets a lot of traffic. We just gave a trails grant to the city of Columbia, who's done a great job of connecting their city through the MKT to the Katy, and we're trying to inspire other cities to do the same thing. We also have the option we're getting really close to exercising for the southern section of that of that trail that'll go across through Miller County down through Tuscumbia. And for me, this is really important. It's one of the first things I did in the state senate. The Katy Trail came about at that time. It was very contentious for a while. As a litigation, when I was attorney general, folks were litigating against it. I won those cases all the way to the Supreme Court. So I've been involved in this one since before the beginning and, and helped finish it. And now to us in the last few weeks as governor to complete it across the Kansas City is one of those things that makes you feel really proud. And it lends itself to a major initiative you and the First Lady instituted, and that is the 100 Missouri Miles Challenge. You guys created this to celebrate Missouri's distinction as the best trail state a few years ago. What's been the result of that program, and what does it mean to you? Well, we're in the office where it was thought up, Brandon. I'll tell you the story. I mean, we were we were here, and somebody walked in and said, Missouri's just been chosen best trail state. What do we do? And I said, call Director Brian. We're gonna, First Lady and I are going to challenge everybody to go out and walk 100 miles, or ride 100 miles, or do whatever. It literally that quickly, we decided it because it was pretty late in the year when it was decided so we just stood up a web page and started talking about it and here we are two and a half years later over twenty-seven thousand people have done over 5.7 million miles and logged it we've got all kinds of health groups involved so you'd be amazed at how many cancer patients and people in rehab and whatnot with the web applications we have can can talk with their friends and log their miles in essence together. We've also made it available so you can do it for your dog. Huck's going to try to get 50 this year. We'll see if he makes it. He's getting he's getting close. If the weather stays good, our dog's going to going to get halfway to the 100-mile challenge. He does a lot of miles, just not that many on the trails. The bottom line is we were I won't say surprised, but Missourians don't just talk about these values. They live them. And when you're out on that trail or you're on any trail and you're crossing smiling people that are out there, you understand how important it is to your state. So the First Lady and I have been incredibly impressed by the number of education groups, health groups, and others that have logged over five and a half million miles on Missouri trails. And we're just really happy to see that the value we knew was there is played out in a tangible way. And the website's great. I mean, it's very user-friendly. You go onto the website and you, you sign yourself up and you can log your miles. Now, I checked it today, and I think for the first time ever, you're ahead of the First Lady. Yeah, as I end my term as governor, we, we've bought a household in the St. Louis area that she's been over there trying to move into. So I've had a few nights here over the last month where I've had the advantage of hitting out on the trail and putting in some much more serious miles, six, seven. If I, could, I did that for a few weeks. I snuck up on her. But once this podcast is aired, she'll get back to, to logging her miles. This is the first time, though, since the, the, the 
the challenge started that I've ever been ahead of her. And I just, the fact that you and I are saying it pretty much guarantees it won't last long. <laughs> but you're both over 300. A way to, way to lead by example. I had to, for me, I had to, both my knees replaced. And so this has been a good rehab for me to log and measure those miles and to report those to my doctors and, and to, to measure that stuff. It's been a really tangible rehab to when my surgeons talk to me and the therapists and whatnot, looking at those too, they've, they've watched it carefully. So it's been a good rehab because I've gotten my strength back. A pretty amazing feat, talking about the many miles that you accomplished, was in 1991. You canoed from Kansas City to St. Louis on the Missouri River. I mean, that's that's tough. So what was it like to experience one of the greatest waterways in the world just so intimately? Yeah, it was 387 miles. I used that when I was announcing for Attorney General. First of all, we had fun, okay? I mean, it's fun out there. Some people are intimidated by that river, and you should. It's got a lot of power. You need to stay in the middle of it. I, I will tell people, if you're going to do that, get the Corps of Engineers charts and try to stay in the in the channel. It's, it, it can get gnarly if you're on the side. There's trees underneath and rocks, but if you're in the channel, it's something special. But we did it in the fall, and whether it was monarch butterflies crossing there, going down to the Wataka Valley in Mexico, or the farm crops that were being harvested, or the incredible birds that are along along that, being there at dawn and at dusk each day and doing that 387 miles, it made me a couple of things. First of all, respect the, what a great waterway it is, but also respect the heck out of Lewis and Clark for going the other way. It's <laughs> uh, a lot of work to go 387 miles downstream. I, I, I know it's a little different stream now than it was back then, but still thinking that those folks took off from St. Louis and made it all the way up that river, I couldn't help but think about Lewis and Clark the, the kind of the whole way down, thinking what would it look like to see this for the and, and record it for, for President Jefferson after the Louisiana Purchase. The changes that happened to the river were incredibly important for commerce and the settling of the West, but I would give anything to see it the way they saw it. Yeah, it's a much different river now. It's more of a channelized now. And so you almost got to get back into the side. And we did a couple of times, just canoe back up some of the side creeks and that sort of stuff. And once you got up there, there were some massive catfish up there too, but I do think it has changed a lot and it stays on one side of, of, of the channel now too. Back then you could see it move across. You can literally see cliff to cliff on each side, miles and miles apart. You can only imagine back the thousands and millions of years, what it was like as a meandering stream. But the bottom line is the same. It's the same area and it's an important part of history. And we need to continue to protect both the cleanliness and usefulness of that river. All right. This weekend, you and hundreds of thousands of Missourians and visiting non-residents will participate in opening weekend of firearms deer season. Why do you hunt? I've always enjoyed it. Although I will have to tell you as governor, I've, I've enjoyed hunting. I've hunted more than I've fished because it's so quiet. I mean, not that fishing is not quiet, but I've really enjoyed getting out. And I've, I've become a little bit better a wing shooter than I was. I mean, I, I like to hunt dove because you can always got an excuse to miss. But the bottom line is, is that for a couple of reasons, first of all, I enjoy it. But second of all, when you can be the chief executive of the state and you can literally be sitting in a stand before dawn and you can realize that there's over 425,000 other people in your state doing exactly the same thing at that time, it's like hardwiring a bond of connection to people. That's, that's 7 or 8% of the population of the state doing one thing. It's kind of like everybody watching the Royals in the World Series or the Cardinals in the World Series. You connect up. So as governor, that connection's been important to me. The hunting's fine. I wish I wouldn't have missed that really nice deer the first day of the season last year. I got an eight-pointer later on. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is it's something that Missourians do. I've always enjoyed doing it, and it's been especially fun as governor. And we're really kind of a sleeper state. People hear a lot about Kansas. They hear a lot about Iowa. But the fact of the matter is, is it's hard to beat Missouri. 
one, for the quality of the animals. The world record Missouri monarch was found dead in St. Louis County, the non-typical. Um, the number three typical buck was killed in Missouri. Uh, we're always in the, in the top ten of Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young entries, and we take over 250,000 deer a year. Missourians and, and non-residents combined hold 1.2 million deer licenses. That's me buying three and you buying two. And But collectively, not only is it just so important traditionally, but another huge economic driver, which is something that that drove me crazy when we were talking about that captive deer issue. A lot of legislators wanted to bring up the economic impact of that industry. Well, it's pennies on the dollar compared to what the wildlife and and the pursuit of of wild deer brings. I mean, we're talking about a billion-dollar industry. I I saw, I haven't seen it in the last couple years, but I saw one year where the sales tax numbers in Adair County up in Kirksville were higher for November, the month of gun season, than they were December, the month of Christmas. Hunters go out and get prepared to go, and they make Christmas purchases and make lifetime purchases as they come up on gun season. Uh, it has a huge economic impact. Plus, people, uh, as you'll find in your property down down south, you'll do something to it each year to make it a little bit better. You believe in a conservation ethic, you'll put a different stand up, you'll improve it in some way. So the investments that people make are not only just returning sales tax that year, returning things that year, they're increasing the value of the land at the same time. That's something that's economically important. It's a very, very high, holy time for Missouri outdoors folks. It's the best time of year. You know, it's hard for me to get off the subject, but again, the chronic wasting disease issue is so important because not only does it threaten the tradition of hunting, but it threatens that economic base. I've been privileged to serve along with the CEO of the State Chamber of Commerce, Dan Mahan, as co-chairs of a program called Hunting Works for Missouri, in which we've studied the economic impact hunting has on rural communities all across the state. And I live in Howard County, you know, population less than 8,000. I see the Orange Army roll out this weekend, and I know what it's like to not be able to get a table at the restaurant Emmett's. It only happens one week a year. But then you look at Macon County and and that area up there where CWD was first discovered, and I talked to landowners, and, and the, the property values decreased. The tourism dollars decreased. I mean, it has a significant impact on these areas. Well, and it, it, once it gets going, there's very little ways to stop it. And, and consequently, having to be aggressive on the front end is important. But if, if we have what has happened in other states, the herd gets seriously depopulated, the damage is significant, it will cost us a generation of economic and valued hunting in our state. Which is why, even though it's, it's been you know, something nobody's wanted to see happen, but the, the efforts of MDC to take deer out of that area to slow the spread and uh, your support of that was instrumental to, to making sure a, a bad situation doesn't get worse. Those are hard decisions, difficult short, almost impossibly difficult short-term decisions, but when looked at in the reflection of long-term time, very, very vital. That's one of the reasons why keeping an independently empowered conservation department and giving them the authority to make science-based, important long-term decisions for wildlife management is so important. It isn't about one week or one day. It's about making sure that we pass our state on to the next generation stronger than we got it. Share the Harvest is a program that allows hunters to donate all or a portion of their deer to Missourians in need. It's near and dear to my heart. It's something that I participate in, and you do too, and I think that's so admirable. You've been a staunch supporter of this program. Why do you participate? Let's talk about the back end of the program. One year, the First Lady and I worked on the back end of the program, delivering the protein to food pantries around the state. And I'll remember like yesterday, we were down at West Plains at a Baptist church with the conservation agent delivering those frozen packets of ground up venison. And I saw the fellow that was there, an elderly gentleman volunteering in his church, 
take three of the packets and put them in the freezer underneath some other items. And I said to him, why are you doing that? He said, because there's a family I promised that we were going to give some to this year, and I know they need it, and they can't be here the first or second day. So I'm just going to hide that down there so that when they come back, the guy's got a job now. He's got two kids, and I want to make sure that they have that venison that I promised to them. So you get that level of connection and how important it is to get protein in diets and the chance as a hunter to provide for others other than yourself is part of that bond of why we hunt. We harvest, as, as Dave Murphy said, you get to have that free-range deer. It, it really does. It takes us back to the core of what it means to be a hunter, and that's, you know, back historically everyone had their role, and, and the hunters had to go out and provide food for others in the community, and, and we're able to do that today through this program. i got to tell you, really the defining moment for me in this Share the Harvest experience was when we were in Sykeston. And uh, I don't think I ever told you about this, but we were there to give a press conference announcing this. We were at the food bank in Sykeston, and I was nervous, so I was over at Lambert's, you know, having some throwed rolls, and I was in my booth writing my remarks. And my waitress said, what are you doing? And I told her I'm going to be joining the governor to give a press conference on Share the Harvest. Well, what is Share the Harvest? And I explained it to her a little bit, and she said, can you hold on a second? She went and got two more waitresses, and all three of them sat down in my booth. And now these are hardworking women that do their best to make it, but all three of them said, there's times where we need a little bit of help. How do I participate in this program? And at that point, maybe it hadn't really dawned on me that it's not just the disabled, it's not just the unemployed, it's just people that may need a little bump just a little bit of help, and you're able to provide that through hunting. And I just, I find it to be amazing. Well, it is amazing. I think a lot of people have that, well, not particularly that story, stories like you and I just told. So that's why for me, the, the front end of it, getting into your stand, making the shot, doing that, uh, cleaning the deer, all of that sort of stuff is important. But I think this is one of those unique situations in which the bounty of the harvest can be shared with those most in need. And I've been involved in food pantry issues. I was just down at Convoy of Hope that does a lot of food. People are very generous, but protein is hard to find. I mean, folks that give things to food banks often give starches. They'll give rice. They'll give pasta. And having fresh frozen meat is a real addition to the healthiness of those diets also. And that's another reason why it connects people so well. And in 2015, over 260,000 pounds of venison was donated to this program. So if you just do a rough estimate of a quarter pound per meal, you're talking well over a million meals placed on tables across the state. Yeah, all through the Generosity of Conservation Federation and hunters that are out there working hard to think about the, the better good. And, and the efforts of the meat processors and, and the support of the food banks and some incredible sponsors as well. Something that's very important to hunting is public lands, especially federal public lands in the West. They're essential to hunting and outdoor recreation, fishing, camping, hiking, horseback riding, paddling, mountain biking, and more. For tens of millions of Americans, it's the only places they have to do these. Now the Republican Party has added to their official platform a call to transfer all federal lands to their respective states, who of course have no way of taking on the task of managing these lands, so they will be sold to the highest bidder. Personally, this infuriates me. How could the party of Theodore Roosevelt want to destroy this incredible American legacy? What are your thoughts on federal land transfers? Well, first of all, I mean, you you stated the, the challenge very accurately and the emotion. When you and I think about great conservation things that were done for our state and our country, names like Teddy Roosevelt come up, the Antiquities Act comes up, and how we've been able to, to get land and keep it for the use of everyone. 
the bottom line is that you stated it exactly. I just agree, happened to just agree with you. I, I couldn't state it any better, Brandon, than you did, which is that I what I say is the money's always on the other side. If folks are trying to develop something, that's where the money is. Trying to preserve something is never the money. So we have to call on our values. I do think that as a state, as somebody who's managed a state and done so in a AAA-rated state, highest-rated credit-rated state in the country, that giving us that additional responsibility without additional revenue would mean that those lands would either be sold or degraded in a way that they couldn't be used publicly. That's not good policy for our country. It's not good policy for our state. It's not good fiscal policy for our country. It's not good fiscal policy for our state. So it would be more expensive, and it would degrade the land and value that we all own. That's the hard part for me. We own this land, okay? And nobody should give away something that we all own (laughs) or sell it away without our ascension. So I think hopefully this movement will slow down. I'm hopeful it will. But if it gets going, we're all going to have to bow our necks and and, and fight pretty hard. And and there is a growing movement of support. And you talked earlier about younger people getting involved. And this is an area where we're seeing a lot of millennial support. I've got good friends at an organization called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers that's based out of Missoula. They're doing a great job on this. The Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership is doing a great job. Trout Unlimited is doing a great job. National Wildlife Federation is doing a great job. People are starting to rally around it. I mean, I just can't see the minority winning on this. Although I do think that we have to be cognizant in the Western states and how much of that land is owned by the federal government. And make sure that the that the Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture are opening that land up for use for, for the public. So I think that there's two sides of the message. One is defending what we have, but also working to be advocates for people that want to get out on the land, that want to hunt, that want to fish or hike. Uh, and I do think those federal agencies sometimes can be some a little bit bureaucratic. So I think those of us at the state level, it's really important that we be spokespeople. And if we can help our neighbors to the West get more and better outdoor use of that land, that's also something that, that's positive. Uh, and so I think we need to recognize that it's more than about states' rights. It's about property rights and reflect kind of the need to be able to use in a positive conservation-minded way that land. And I think people have to be realistic about what conservation is. Conservation is wise use. It's not preservation. It's not hands-off. It's how do we use these resources wisely to ensure they exist into the future. There's room for industry and there's room for agriculture. There's definitely room for hunting, fishing, trapping, hiking, and all those things. But we have to realize that conservation is wise use, and we're not shutting these lands off from exactly what you talked about. There's reuse for logging, too. These have to be managed, and you can harvest off of them timber. It's a a great industry. If it's done in a conservation-minded way, it slows down erosion, adds to the strength of the land, and can actually make better crops. So the bottom line is tree farming is something, and forestry that's very important to the long-term conservation ethic of our country. Now, as a, a former attorney general, how in the world could the Bundys and the rest of the occupiers of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge be acquitted? I mean, the entire country watched them conduct an armed occupation of a federally owned property. Um, I think that, I mean, I, I'll hate to go lawyer on the deal, uh, but I will for just a second. I, I have a license. It's currently, I think that, that what happened was the, the, the charge in that of conspiracy was too broad a charge. They should have come at each individual and said, you shouldn't have done what you did. But when they tried to expand the charges into some sort of broader conspiracy, they made the, the, the case way more complicated than what it was. You, neither you nor I have the right to stand with a gun and keep people off public land. And that's pretty clear. And the juror said that afterwards. They did not side with the Bundys. They were confused by the legal theory. So I don't think this stands for the proposition that that a few people with guns can keep you and I or hunters or fishermen or hikers or or bikers or whatever off of this land. I think that it stands for if you're going to talk about these 
principles we have. You have to be simple and straightforward. And it's my hope that this case stands for the proposition that individuals don't have that power. But as you said, when you look at the, the verdict as it came down, finding I'm not guilty, it's very confusing and difficult to deal with. But I do think that the case as presented was far too complicated. It could have been done simpler. And if it was done simpler, I think it would have had a different result. Your list of conservation and natural resource accomplishments is spectacular. We've touched on a number of them. But what are you most proud of? If you had to choose one aspect of your conservation legacy to be remembered for, what would it be? I think long term, I mean, I think reintroducing elk is important. Long term, I think expanding share of the harvest is important. Long term, I think our stewardship of our parks has, has been important. But I think ultimately, long run, expanding a park system at the same time we were having an economic meltdown without raising taxes, by wise use of the resources we had, taking that Katy Trail to Kansas City, building Echo Bluff State Park, opening other parks around the state, expanding, buying land outside the spring at Bennett Springs so we wouldn't get spoilization of that spring. I think ultimately, long run, the ability at a difficult economic time without asking the public through taxes to get any more money to be able to expand the park system and keep it free is something that will stand the test of time as a significant movement forward for our state. Now to flip the question, what was left on the table? What didn't you get done that you had hoped to? Well, the development of some of the parks is important. I also was really hopeful that when we introduced the first elk, that I'd be the first person to shoot the first elk, okay? And so we're getting the time done here. I, I, I said at the time that I didn't know who was going to harvest the second elk, but I figured who was going to harvest the first one. But since some of the CWD issues and all that, they had to slow down some of the bringing an elk to make sure we were. So I, it's really troublesome to me that I didn't get that done. We also wanted to do a buffalo hunt down in Prairie Park. I mean, I, I really think we could. That's something that you working in the future with parks. They have to call off some of those those buffalo each year anyway if we could organize a hunt and have somebody pay some serious money to be the first person to shoot on public land a free-ranging buffalo in missouri that i think people would pay some serious money for that and help the federation we were our theory was to split the money between the federation and the prairie foundation we just never got it organized and done but i do think that things like that where people can get things done and the other thing that that i wish like I said, I don't spend a lot of my time looking over my shoulder saying I wish I would have done more because as governor, you get a lot of chances to make progress. But I do think that coming out of the legacy of lead, I'd like to be accelerating even more, cleaning up some of the areas in that Farmington, Fredericktown area so that we could make sure that the water was really safe to drink down there. That's on the environmental resource side, but it does have something to do with making sure that the state's a better place. We didn't get into the elk very, very deeply, but I just want to comment for a second on how important it is to bring that species back. And and we're seeing it in other states. If you haven't been down to the Peck Ranch area, Current River Conservation area, to see the wild elk, I mean, it it is a moving experience. To hear the bugle of a bull elk in Missouri in the fall is phenomenal. And they're just the most majestic creatures. And again, not just a win for wildlife and conservation, but another economic driver. My, my friend Jim Anderson, the mayor of Eminence, he's booking out his cottages and cabins throughout October because people are coming down to see the elk now. And these issues that sometimes start out as contentious seem to have a way of working themselves out to prove sound, not only socially, but also economically. It's really going to be a great, great addition to the area. And I do think Jim's done a great job of being supportive and 
defining elk eminence as the elk capital of Missouri, too. I mean, when the Parks Association had their meeting at Echo Bluff, they had a series of things that folks could do that were there to go out and look at things in the region, whether look at springs or whatever. The vast majority went over to the Peck Ranch to see the, the elk. I also had a chance back-to-back over there last year to see an elk and then turn my head the other way and see a bobcat running the other way, both at the same time, basically, which in this state's pretty rare. I mean, for me, I'm not, I haven't seen that many bobcat relative to how many there are. They're, they're pretty stealthy characters and I'm a little, a little lumbering out there, but to see both of them back to back in your same eyesight in two different places in Missouri, in a wild place managed, it's just an exciting thing to see. Yeah, we actually have two cities down there vying to be the elk capital with Ellington and Eminence both erecting statues of elk and, and claiming to be the elk capital. That's what we like. We want that com- yeah, healthy competition. No, it's great. And and now the blackberry surgeons and Willow Springs. We've made Willow Springs the bear city, Missouri, and they're so proud of that. Their their high school mascot is the bears and it's right in the heart of the the resurgence of the bear population and there's just something about knowing there's bears out there. It's just a wilderness, and, and we, we're learning how to reintegrate them into modern times. And, you know, it's going to be great to have elk and bears and bobcats. And sooner or later, we're going to come across a pair of mountain lions that have proven to breed in the state. And Missouri's just, it's wild. It's nice to think about reestablishing these native species, these native animals, and them living a native lifestyle out there in the wild. It makes you feel better as a human being. It makes us feel like we have turned the tide of time against the despoiling of our environment and instead are talking about how do we restore and conserve and live that conservation ethic. It's well known that the outgoing president of the United States leaves a note for the incoming president. First of all, is that a tradition for governors as well? And secondly, what advice do you have for the incoming governor concerning the conservation of Missouri's natural resources? Yes, it is. I will leave a letter and, you know, a number of things. As far as this area, it's to think backwards and forwards at the same time. A hundred years ago, Governor Hadley used to have annual float trips for the national press and Congress and others down the current river. He attempted to start the state park system. He attempted to get public lands and get tourism going, and he basically failed. Uh, He didn't get it done, lost by one vote in the legislature. And it cost us almost 50 years before we got started in a significant way with our park system, 75, 78 years ago when conservation started. I think that the best thing I can tell the next governor in this area is to think back where we were before, before conservation department, before the parks department, before the sales tax that takes care of our soil and water as well as our parks, and think what the state was then. And then compare it to where you are now and don't do anything that moves us more closely to the way we were before we took care of our resources and do everything you can to keep us moving forward on a path to progress. What does the future hold for Jay Nixon? Uh, it's uh, First of all, it's been 30 years. I thank the people for giving George Ann and I the right to serve. The opportunity we've had has been great. We've got a house in the St. Louis area that we'll be moving into after the election. I'm not going to say exactly what I'm going to do other than to say, because I've only got 61 days left. A lot of people are, are giving me advice. I like that advice. And I certainly don't want to make any ethical mistakes in the last 60 days and, and accept anything other than to say that I expect to remain active in these areas. You know, I'm a lawyer. I could clearly there are legal opportunities for me where I can play out not just the simplicity of lawsuits, but the public policy involved in that area also. And I think you'll expect to see me remain active on the issues I feel important to, not necessarily the politics. I also, I'll be supportive of the next governor. I, I'm not somebody that's going to spend a lot of time criticizing. If they need some help, I'm going to give them help. But I do think that I have a unique perspective of 30 years of service that I can continue to speak in a strong and strident voice for issues I feel strongly about. Governor, it's been an honor to get to know you and, and work with you on behalf of thousands of members of CFM and our, our corporate supporters and our affiliate organizations. 
thank you for all you've done for this state, for the conservation of our natural resources. I just want to wish you the, the best in whatever comes next, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. I'd also like to say, Brandon, you personally, I just really appreciate the way you write. I think it's, it's, a, it's a lost art and a lost skill, and it's a lot easier for me to sit here and talk for an hour than who knows how long it takes you to write your columns and all that sort of stuff and edit them and come up with them and get the pictures. Folks that, that write they are instantly part of history. Folks that talk, that dust gets blown away pretty quickly. So I just appreciate that you have not given up that with the additional duties you have at CFM, and you've continued to be somebody who puts pen to paper and expresses what you feel about this state and about conservation regularly. I think that's an important part of carrying on this legacy is tying the written word. I know that when I read some Aldo Leopold here and there and think about the conservation ethic when he was talking about it, look at the piece of property he bought and kept for many decades and how it was when he was when he passed. It's that type of thing that I think you reflect in your writings, and I just deeply appreciate it and will continue to read you regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. That's a column that I look forward to reading. Thank you, sir.